You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse uh, on the global market through the lens of rules-based investing. For long-term listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog on all the past episodes that we have produced and that you may have missed. Martz, good afternoon. How are you doing today? Doing really good. Good afternoon, Niels. How are you? Yes, yes, doing fine. Thanks. The sun is back after a week of rain, it feels like here in Switzerland. So we're, yeah, enjoying a little bit of nicer weather. Um, before we get into things, I uh, I just want to acknowledge uh, with a shout out to uh, a couple of people, AGF Hawk and Joe, who both jumped into uh, the iTunes store this week and left a very nice rating and review. We highly appreciate this. And of course, um, you know, a big shout out to everyone else who took time to do so. I don't check every single iTunes store, but uh, uh, we certainly appreciate that. And if you want to help us grow the podcast, this is definitely a good way of doing it. And uh, you can head over to toptradersunplugcom forward slash review. And it gives you all the instructions on how to help us out. It only really takes a couple of minutes. Now, since uh, the month of April finished uh, Thursday night, I think I'm going to broaden out my kind of market wrap a little bit to cover the past uh, month or so instead of just uh, focusing on on last week. And of course, if you look at the strong rebound in equities we've seen since March 23rd and the reversal um, to the strong downtrend that we were in, you probably wouldn't think that a lot of these companies will be reporting Q1 and Q2 results will show vastly lower earnings uh, than what we saw only three months ago. But it does seem that the markets are saying, you know, no earnings, no problem. It certainly has been, uh, you know, a bull market for a few weeks now. And and I think every single bull has found an excuse to buy stocks, um, of course, helped uh, as ever by the growing Reserve Bank credit, which is the Fed's uh, total of interest-bearing assets, which has now jumped to $6.6 trillion. Um, you know, but... As far as I'm aware, at least, um, this is not that unusual um, because even during bear markets, you often see that we have more up days than down days. And that's actually where why it's so hard to trade in a bear market. Uh, that is, of course, uh, unless you are rules based and don't get emotionally involved uh, in what's going on. Um, but stocks um, was not the only sector that had a strong rebound from its lows uh, energy. Um, you know, saw some incredible, at least in percentage terms, up moves uh, as well in the past couple of weeks after the May crude contract went negative. Um, and of course, yes, that was one of those, uh, you know, first time in history events that we saw uh, with oil. And uh, again, perhaps uh, linked to the amount of money flowing into the two largest oil exchange traded products uh, and ETFs, one of them being the USO 
which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, which is, um, I guess, a way where retail investors believe that they can buy cheap oil in in quotation. It certainly is staggering the amount of accounts that you've seen uh, show up now on, on platforms like Robinhood that now owns the USO. But I know we're going to talk more about that later, but that's just some of the things that I had noticed and written down that I would um, mention. So quite a few things I would say going on at the moment, Moritz, and, uh, you know, which made it an interesting month uh, for, you know, in terms of April uh, to navigate. So I'm curious to know how how it all panned out on on your side and and what you've uh, what has caught your attention, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, first off, speaking about attention, uh, my attention was caught late last evening, uh, my time watching the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, and um, oh, yes, you know, with uh, Warren Buffett holding a virtual meeting for the first time. By the way, many AGMs these days are fully virtual. Um, unfortunately, Charlie Munger was not there. So it, um, you know, I, I preferred it when, uh, when, when they had a packed, a packed room, a packed, uh, you know, convention center with thousands and tens of thousands of people. But um, those are the times. What were the key takeaways? I've heard one key takeaway, and and you can probably confirm that, and that is Warren Buffett didn't buy a single stock while the market went down by thirty-five plus percent. Yeah, that's one of the things. Um, I must say, you know, for the first probably forty-five minutes, he was. Uh, making the case, you know, over and over again, we've, we've heard him say that before, can never bet against America. America is a success story. There is, uh, you know, it's uh, always gotten stronger. It's the future's bright, you know, and all of that. Um, I would say like, you know, looking back, this is certainly true. It may very well be true going forward, but uh, you know, we, we just don't know. I mean, those are so, um, you know, interesting times in terms of you know central bank and unusual times in terms of central bank policies and uh, all that stuff that goes on who knows what the future will bring i certainly don't but he is uh he's as always the bull on america and says never bet against it it will come out stronger out of this crisis um, than ever before um but yes i mean they're sitting on a massive amount of cash and, Did he uh, say why? I mean, he sold all his airlines. I understand. So even though he want to bet with America, he doesn't doesn't want to bet with American Airlines. It seems. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't, I didn't pick up exactly the reasoning for that. And I must say, you know, I didn't go through the full thing. That would have taken until I don't know two or three a.m. in the morning my time. So I. Uh, you know, did the first hour, first hour and 15 minutes, and then I kind of like, you know, switched out of it. Um, so I need to follow up on it. But, you know, when I always go like, okay, when they have this AGM, um, uh, I make an effort to uh, to dial in and listen to it because normally there's always a gem or a nugget or two where you say like, this is so well said, and you know, they have all these experience. Um, so definitely interesting to listen to them. Yeah. Um, but to your question on performance, um, my month, just looking at the numbers here, my month of April is up 51 basis points. It, uh, uh, it was up a bit more um, than that a week or two ago, uh, but I had a negative week. I lost a bit more than 1% this past week. I'm now up 3.15% year to date. And the things or the markets, the positions that have worked pretty well. I mean, like say, you know, only the outstanding 
larger kind of like percentage movements is what I'm saying here. Uh, being short emissions, long cocoa, short silver, and long orange juice, those markets have, or those positions have made money. And um, on the flip side of that, being short crude oil, our standout trade for this year in many respects, uh, has been a loser this past week because crude started to rally quite strongly, actually. Um, and I've also lost money on being long weed, short lean hawks. Here you go. Another one of our standout trades for this year, I think, across the trend following community. Uh, hawks rallied very, very strongly this past week. So this cost money, short sugar, coffee and short Bitcoin. Those lost money. Um, other than that, all the other markets didn't really produce that much of a PL, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, but uh, nothing that's too noteworthy. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a kind of very similar story uh, on our side, I have to say, uh, you know, but it was good to see, uh, I think, that that even despite these large counter trend moves in April, um, you know, we finished also up with a, a slight profit, which uh, uh, which is great because often what you see is that uh, when you have a strong month in a in a sort of a crisis period, when the when some of these rebounds occur, you end up giving back, uh, you know, quite a bit of what you just made. We certainly saw that in some of the long vol funds uh, that are now coming out with their numbers. They they had a great march, but uh, gave back a, a fair bit of that in in April. But anyways, we also finished up slightly for the month um, made money in the energy sector despite the rebound we've seen uh, also made money in fixed income and we made some money in volatility so so that was nice equities were pretty flat for us uh, overall um, and so was the grains and and meats uh, for the month uh, and then we had currencies and softs and metals and they all produced small losses um, so but, you know, as they say, you know, sell in May and go away, um, you know, that might be the play for the year. There's only one problem, and that is we're not allowed to go anywhere. So, um, exactly. you know, so I'm not <laughs> just sure whether, where that, where, where, what we're going to do with that slogan anymore. But, um, yeah, so there we are. But, you know, it's interesting just to maybe go off uh, a tangent a little bit, just picking up what you said about... Um, you know, no, not you know, not having any kind of visibility on things, and and I just want to say that there was a, a great uh, blog post uh, from a couple of days ago by Morgan House. We often uh, mention Morgan uh, on on that, and he he wrote a great post uh, titled "When You Have No Idea What Happens Next," and it could really well have been written about trend following. It's all about this uh, challenge you have with people trying to forecast. Uh, you know what's going to happen and it never works out really and uh, and so it rather than forecasting what you potentially should have instead is just have expectations and as we as trend followers our expectations of course are that we believe markets from time to time will trend uh, on our side we also believe that all markets have the same ability to trend so we should over the long period of time be able to make the same amount of profits from all markets so um so i thought that was a really nice um post that he put together as, as usual um and and also just the point i mean even though we've had now three months of of a lot of change are we any the wiser really 
compared to where we were in January? I mean, I think that's a good question. Uh, so yeah, so those were just something that I uh, picked up uh, as well. But let's see what, uh, in terms of the social side of things, uh, what you saw. Um, we have a question or a couple of questions we need to go through. And then there is an article, a new article out by AQR we can talk about, uh, which I found also interesting, even though I haven't read the full article itself, but I read a post relating to it, which I think we can dive into. And then I think you wanted to bring up a few more points about the whole uh, oil um, situation at the moment, things you had um, also uh, found interesting. Yeah, so I mean, this is also uh, playing into what I've been seeing on, you know, in social media this past week. There's been a lot of talk about USO. Um, USO, as, as listeners probably know, is an ETP that is long crude oil futures contracts trading on NYMEX and ICE. And it used to be that this product um, had a long exposure to the front month contract of oil uh, exclusively. And this has changed. It has changed um, a couple of days back. It is now trading across the curve all the way out to June 21. So it has exposure to July. By the way, it has no longer exposure to June. Um, the front month contract for USO is now July. It has exposure to August, to September, to December, and also to June 21, I think. And so, I mean, point one is um, buying those products. You know, it's a product that is long futures contracts. We've spoken about, you know, the problem of contango and roll losses and all of that. I'm not sure if all the retail investors buying these products completely understand what's going on there. Maybe they think of, of that being more like a spot exposed product. And because oil has been so low, negative uh, two weeks ago, uh, they're, they're, they're looking for a bounce and they're buying it and they're unaware of the fact that they may be losing money because that product rolls from one contract to the next in a contango environment. Less so now than it used to be when it was exclusively trading front month, but still that problem exists. Now, what I found interesting about that, uh, what, what I picked up is, um, you know, the USO fund is large. And we've heard about, you know, the number of Robinhood accounts being opened up to trade that product and uh, it's actively traded. Um, there's no longer any issuance of shares, by the way, USO is trading, I think, at a 1.8% premium to NAV, right? And um, so what's interesting here is you have this large product that is a substantial amount of open interest across the futures curve and uh, it buys, you know, it is designed to buy. And this situation may give producers a way out of their calamity. I'm not saying that I have proof of that, but I found the the argument um, very uh, uh, appealing is to say, well, instead of shutting down your well or reducing production capacity, which may be damaging to the reservoir, right? And it's, by the way, it's not a thing that you can like a water faucet turn on and off. So you need to make those calculations as a producer and say, okay, maybe it's worthwhile to continue producing at full speed or only slightly reduce speed and sell into a market that has lower prices as opposed to um, stopping production and then not being able to fully recover. So it may give those producers a way out by selling their production forward in the futures market into, say, August, September, October, November, December contracts, which, by the way, are trading, you know, north of 25, 30 bucks, right? 
Um, and, and then they will just deliver. And they will demand from the other side who's long the futures contract to honor the contract and take delivery of that, you know, of the barrels of oil. And now it's no longer the producer's problem. You know, the buyer, the long holder of that futures contract has the problem of figuring out where to put those barrels. You know, either find storage or sell that contract to somebody else during the roll, but maybe you won't be able to find anyone because storage is still... Um, well, I think it's spoken for and, and, and reserved, at least in Cushing, it seems to be the case from what I hear. So it is, you know, it, it creates those structural things in a market uh, that I just, you know, find very interesting to follow and see what's going on there. You know, my, my trend following trading positions, they really couldn't care less about that. Uh, they're still short, but regardless, I, I find it very interesting to follow along with USO and the and the oil futures um dynamics at, at those you know at, at the given point in time i mean i think there's a lot of really good reasons why you should pay attention to all this because we know that oil is is such an important part of of the world economy uh, so so i, I guess definitely agree with you um you know a lot of these points uh were also discussed on a on a podcast episode i think it was from uh, monday on the uh, macro voices um where eric uh, townsend had Jim Bianco on, and I think it's a worthwhile listening to that episode. They go into uh, you know quite a lot of detail because it's only focused on on this whole oil uh, debacle, and um, and I certainly learned a lot that I didn't know. And and as you rightly say, I mean shutting down a, a well is not easy, and it's uh, you know you have to be very careful about it. And but also you can't actually reduce the production to less than 60 or 70 percent then you damage the the well so you either produce at 60 or 70 percent or you produce at zero and people obviously don't want to do that so it's likely we're going to have excess oil for for a while at least until uh, demand picks up and i think also jim bianco mentioned another stat which i found interesting which is something like that normally the U.S. will use about 10 million barrels a day just for gasoline to drive. And that number at the moment is down at 6 million. So unless we all start, or, or the, the Americans all start driving as they usually do, usually would do, which is doubtful uh, for a while at least, then there's going to be this excess amount of uh, uh, oil just keep building up. Uh, and as you rightly say, Cushing, Oklahoma is, is filling up. And uh, so what are you going to do with the oil? Yeah, and look, it's you know it's the same here. I just need to look at myself and my family. We're certainly driving much, much less than we used to. You know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, the commute's no longer there, right? The uh, traveling around by airplane is no longer there. The summer vacation is kind of canceled, it seems, right? So, all of that stuff. I don't. I don't think that you know in the next, uh, you know, even if we have kind of like a, a relaxing of the current situation. I don't think fuel demand is going to go, to be back at 100% where it used to be, say, in, uh, in January or December last year. It's just not going to happen that quick. And and maybe some people will continue to work out of their home office and the commute is just never coming back to the extent it used to be. With that said, I was a bit a bit surprised. And, and like I said, I mean, I have, five, five, no, I have no idea what's causing that. But so the USO fund is out of the June contract and the June contract had a relatively strong rally this past week. And uh, my question was really, I was looking at that, I was like, who's buying that contract? And uh, maybe listeners, if you know, uh, and you can enlighten us, send us an email, I'd be very, or put it on Twitter, I'd be very interested in, 
in a variety of opinions on uh, who's been the buyer of that June futures contract in the past uh, in the past uh, couple of days. How much did it actually rally in dollar terms? I don't mean percentage terms because percentages at the moment uh, can look significant uh, without being much more than a couple of dollars, I guess. So. Yeah, so uh, I can look at it right now. So it had a, um, it, it rallied kind of like from, from 11, 11 and a half to 19.78, which is where it's settled. Mm -hmm. uh, settled. Uh, yeah. yeah, very, very substantial rise. And, you know, um, most brokers don't allow, um, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I don't know that this is the reason, but, but, but USO did something else in addition to what you mentioned in terms of changing their structure. They also did an eight for one split of their shares, meaning... Right. that the price of USO, instead of trading at $2, would now trade at $20. At roughly uh, where the futures contract is trading. Funnily right? enough, how funny no, enough, how that's roughly no, where it, the futures is. Exactly. Yeah. And as we know, yeah. you know, those splits have no economic impact whatsoever. Okay. It's just cosmetics, right? Yeah. But obviously, it's uh, from a marketing point of view, uh, nicer to say, hey, USO is relatively close to where the front month um, futures contract is trading, as opposed to, you know, it trades at two and a half bucks, which is, which sounds like it's, it's, it's dead. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no substantial rally in that contract. And um, most brokerages, you know, from, from what I hear, FCMs, interactive brokers, etc., they no longer permit uh, retail clients to trade in the June contract because they've been burned or scared by the volatility of the May contract, you know, 10 days or so ago. So it's probably not retail. Um, but anyway, like, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to hear opinions if people have them. Um, and um, it just continues to be interesting. You know, if people are listening to us for the first time, Mort, they might actually think that we are either fundamental traders or oil traders. Yeah, we, got we, the to, we need podcast. to get off. We, we need, need to, to get, get off, off this topic. I mean, <laughs> exactly. This is not good for our image, I think. Uh, you know, so let's go to some systematic stuff and maybe even some, uh, maybe even some trend following stuff. Uh, AQR, our good friends at AQR, who produces um, great content when it comes to their research and all of that stuff. Um, they were out with. Um, Another paper, which unfortunately I haven't, I actually haven't read the paper, but I did pick up a blog post that talks about it. And it talks about this uh, post in light of the fact that uh, the heading was new AQR research suggests that CalPERS, which is the big pension fund in California, was right to terminate its tail risk hedge strategy. So now we're starting to get into something that we are more um, used to talking about. Um, and, you know, again, I think what this, at least this blog post talks about is just whether or not, you know, what's the best way for a lot of these institutions to have something in their portfolio that will do well when you see uh, a crisis like we've just been through. And, and of course you can either have specific tail risk strategies, um, or hedge strategies, or you can have, um, you know, other strategies that tend to do well um, but is not designed to only do well when there is a crisis and of course trend following falls into that category as do a few other uh, strategies as well and from what i can tell and correct me if i'm wrong here but from what i could tell uh, from this blog post at least was that um not, you know to a nice uh, confirmation that actually the one strategy that in their research turns out to actually do the best job overall is trend following. Um, because simply a lot of these uh, options 
space strategies and 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 long vol strategies, I guess, in general, are quite expensive to hold on to during the period of time when there are no crises. Um, and and this is also why I don't really like the crisis alpha uh, word when it comes to linking it directly to trend following because that doesn't need to be a crisis for us to make money. So so there is this, you know. It's important for people to understand that although we tend to make money when there's a crisis, we may also make money when there's no crisis. Um, so what did you, uh, if anything, kind of pick up from, from, from this? And I think I do get the sense that this is a topic that we'll, we'll see a lot more of, right? Because we've just been reminded about this. I still think we're in the first round of of a much bigger crisis personally i think this is going to be something we're going to be dealing with for a while and i don't think we have any really imagination as to what you know how this will play out um so so i think um the strong rebound in equities is probably a little bit of a blessing for a lot of investors who weren't prepared for or that where they didn't have you know any protection in their portfolio, I think they've been given a second chance to at least get out or or, or, or kind of reallocate uh, without taking too much of a hit. That's my personal opinion. But what do you uh, make of of some of the comments uh, that are made here? Um, and uh, I can read some of them later on. Uh, I'll find a few. I'll find a few sections. But I just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, happy to give you my thoughts. I mean, um, unsurprisingly, uh, you'll probably find that, you know, we all like the protective elements of trend following systematic long term, medium long term trend following strategies. Actually, we also include the short term trend following people in here because they tend to be the ones with, uh, you know, the, the, the quickest reaction to a change in trends and uh, and the most protective at exactly the point in time when you need it. But there may be other problems or, you know, uh, you know, ramifications with those type of strategies. But unsurprisingly, um, I think trend following is probably the most protective still strategy for your money, um, which is why I'm using it. Diversified, long and short, across all sorts of asset classes. And eventually, if trends, you know, show out there, then, you know, we'll get onto those trends and we'll profit from them. Now, as far as volatility strategies are concerned, um, the way I look at those is I distinguish three types. Um, you have the pure tail focused volatility strategies. So let's just say, you know, they're looking to purchase out of the money puts, for instance, on equities, potentially far of the money puts for equities, and maybe even short dated, right? So that the gamma exposure is relatively high and those um, strategies are very reactive to a drop in spot. Then you have, um, long volatility strategies. So those are strategies that are designed or that they, you know, they're, they're built to benefit from a rise in volatility across asset classes and not necessarily only to protect a negative tail on the left side of the distribution, right? So they're more longer dated. They may be buying calls and not only puts, right? So that if volatility rises and stuff starts moving, they will make money. So their exposure is much more to Vega as opposed to Gamma in general terms. And then thirdly, you have um, relative value volatility funds and strategies uh, who don't look to, you know, be too much long vol or too long Gamma or too long a tail, but more like 
generate some alpha by doing relative value spread trades in vol space. For instance, you know, selling S&P vol, buying Nikkei vol, or the other way around, or selling Bund vol and buying Bobble vol, and, you know, stuff like that. And they all have different performances, and I think, you know, people need to uh, understand what they're, what they're looking at. But one thing is that I think all the successful ones have in common, and which I think is very important, is they're all actively managed. None of them work in any systematic way. They may have some like rules where, you know, the managers go like, okay, this is in general what we do. Those are in general the positions that we are be interested in. So let's look out for these. But the implementation of positions is uh, discretionary and active. And I think it is required to do it in that way. And you need to be a skilled and experienced fall trader to do it successfully because the space is so multidimensional, right? It's different strike prices, different assets, different maturities, different trading venues, OTC and listed, right? Sometimes counterparties have an ax, for instance, a bank because of their structured products business and they're looking to recycle that risk potentially for, for good prices to a hedge fund. So it is a much, much different business than our trend following um, business where we look at futures contracts predominantly which trade on a regulated futures exchange and they have an objectively determined settlement price, right? It is that one market and we're all looking at that one. There's no need for us to look at, you know, finding different counterparties to trade our e-mini contracts. There's the one e-mini contract, we trade that, it has an objective price, right? There's no uh, need to call Morgan Stanley or Goldman or Nomura and, you know, uh, distinguish or, or ask for different prices, we just trade that contract. So. I think active vault trading is, uh, is, is something that's required and all the strategies, really, I've, I've, I haven't found one that works. All the strategies that systematically, systematically buy, for instance, the 10 delta put, right, every month. At the end of the month, they reestablish the position or they do it in some sort of a rolling way, but always on the same market and always, you know, uh, in in the same type of way. They, in my experience, they tend to lose money. They may be there to protect your portfolio um, during during a crisis, during a shock, such as, you know, March 23rd or, you know, the, the month of March. They're there. They, they will then do their job. But if you hold them, because, you know, nobody can time that stuff. Nobody knows when the next drop off a cliff comes. Nobody knows, you know, exactly how prices will develop in the future and when the next crisis or the next shock comes. So you kind of like, you need to keep at it and always buy those out of the money puts or buy out of the money put spreads and stuff like that. But over longer periods of time, if you look at that for like, you know, three, five, seven, ten years, that is a money losing strategy. And when you then compare that, you know, replace that, take that off and replace it by something that's trend following or replace it with some of those active vol funds, you're having a much, much better trade, in my opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just want to read one paragraph from this. So this this article is on Alpha Week, Week's uh, website and it refers to the study that uh, AQR just published. And uh, so one of the paragraphs uh, goes uh, like this. AQR looks at the COVID-19 pandemic and shows that Put options have offered good protection in the February 19 to March 31st, 2020 period. 
as one would expect, but the trend-following model has performed the best of all during that time frame. Managed futures trading strategies, many of which employ trend-following uh, sources of returns, have been the star performer of the various subsets of the hedge fund industry in 2020, making gains both last month and year to date. But many industry commentators argue that investors tend to lose money in managed futures type strategies as they allocate to them when times are bad and pull out before the next downturn, eliminating the hedge they provide on risk assets. And I think that's actually a good point to also mention. Um, and that is, you know, again, we, we argue, of course, and I think we have the evidence on our side um, that trend following, um, you know, really does a great job in producing not only long-term returns, but in particular returns when investors most, most need them. But it requires you to own the strategy at all times because you cannot time it. And unfortunately, we do see, and I expect this to happen again this year, I, I do expect people want the rebalancing has happened and, and, and people have you know got the liquidity from the CTAs as they provide, which is great, but it's also painful to see when people pull out of the strategies that have done well, but they just simply have to buy what has lost them the most money. They want to keep that balanced portfolio um, that they have. But once that's over and done with, um, I do expect to see the interest in trend following uh, come back. And this is something that actually I think is really interesting. We've talked about this a few times, but I see more and more evidence, and, and it's the same on our own research, um, that fully diversified trend-following strategies overall do best. Not least because um, what actually seems to be going on is that those sectors who have the most consistent uh, returns during a time of crisis is very often the commodities. It's not the equities because we end up owning you know, the, the highest amount of equities on the long side right before the crisis happened because that's our job. So it's also where we lose the most money initially, hoping that we'll, it'll be offset by, say, fixed income or the commodities. But it certainly, to me, uh, is pretty clear that you want the fully diversified trend-following strategy, not the financial heavy or even financial-focused trend-following strategy if you want to get those expected returns. So... I wonder, uh, and it would, of course, be a nice problem to have, but I wonder if we could get to a situation at some point when people wake up to once again being reminded that this is something you need to have as a structural uh, core part of your portfolio. And as Chris Cole um, shows in his latest research that, you know, it's about an 18 or 20 percent allocation for it to be meaningful Um I wonder whether we could run out, so to speak, of really good, fully diversified, trend-following managers um, for, for two reasons. One, more and more trend-following managers in the past decade have abandoned trend-following and done other things because it's been a hard strategy to generate returns from. So that reduces the number of pure trend managers. And then on top of that, um, if you want to be big in this industry, you have to at some point abandon the commodities as being a substantial and meaningful part of your portfolio. So again, if you look at the field of fully diversified 
pure trend managers, it's a very small field. And I wonder whether we could get to a situation where people realize that those are the managers you want to own, but they're the ones who are going to be soft closing or closing um, if you see uh, you know, a decent amount, um, you know, flowing in their in their direction the coming year or two, following whatever this crisis is going to turn out to be. I agree. You know, fully diversified, and you know, one one memory that just crossed my mind is um, in the past, say, you know, probably twelve, thirteen or so years, there has been this trend in a way that you know. CTAs that used to be pure trend started to do things or at least market it in a way that is trend following plus a little bit of a special sauce and a little bit that's different and a little bit of an extra thing, maybe mean reversion, but definitely not just 100% pure trend following because because this is no longer apparently as good, right? And um, and this reminds me of, you know, Chesapeake Capital and Jerry was like so greatly saying, yeah, it's 100% trend following plus nothing, plus 0% of anything else. And I think this is important because it exactly those type of pure trend, diversified, pure trend, nothing else, just diversified, pure trend, long and short across all asset classes. That gives you, this is the protective strategy. That gives you the uh, diversification in a portfolio that you really need. If that strategy has other things trading alongside it, for instance, mean reversion, it is a, it is a different type of exposure. People need to be aware of that when they pick their CTA, when they pick their trend following manager. And I would hope that some of that money, Niels, were saying that yeah, it comes back. You know, maybe some of that money comes out now for liquidity reasons, and then people decide to reinvest or allocate to those strategies. It would be great to see that, you know, people understand that and they will allocate to the pure trend following funds. Yeah, no, I mean, um, time will tell um, if it happens. But I think if, if it did, I, you know, I think you could almost get to a point where where that's going to be your, um, you know, kind of your, uh, I don't know what to explain it, but kind of your fear of missing out kind of area um, where if, if managers are uh, really concerned about being able to continue to deliver returns that they will be um, strict when it comes to offering capacity in their strategies and if that's the case it could easily run out um, because there aren't that many left i mean i can hardly think of more than 10 managers that would fit that profile um, so uh, so we we'll, we shall see did you uh, pick up more i thought you mentioned one other point or two that you wanted to uh, bring up today but I can't remember now um... Um, yeah maybe two more points one being more like a technical point but um, it's it's one of the things that I picked up this past week and I found interesting is again the difference between creating the con continuation futures contract or the generic futures contract that you create by rolling from one expiration into the next and I've said on this podcast before that the way I do it is I will create that contract and adjust the historical prices by the price difference at the time of the roll, right? So that creates a continuous time series. Um, there's one other way of doing that, which I personally don't like as much, is doing the same adjustment thinking, but instead of adjusting for the difference in price, it's adjusting using a ratio. So it's dividing the current contract divided 
by the contract that you're rolling out of. And in a situation where, you know, um, Tuesday last week, when crude oil was trading negative, is if this is your roll date, then you just need to be careful that, you know, that ratio that you're calculating is now potentially negative if you're not taking the absolute value of it and that you're creating a time series that is then negative even though the price of the current contract is positive. And this is something that a an adjustment by difference would not have that problem. So I just, I, I picked it up from a couple of... Uh, from a couple of sources and I found it, I, I think I should bring it up here because I know that some of our listeners, they, they're kind of like they're trading themselves and, uh, you know, we get asked some technical questions and normally this type of a difference, uh, it's a dis distinguished without a difference as they say, right? But here all of a sudden there can be a substantial difference. So I just wanted to mention that people should be looking out for that. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and maybe you have more things to, uh, to bring up later on, but it's kind of a nice segue because it's almost like you've been, been psychic because we do have a couple of questions today uh, from, and I say our very own Alistair, and what I mean by that is that Alistair actually attended our live event in New York uh, last year. So uh, so uh, nice to uh, nice to see this uh, line of questions from, from Alistair. So, um, and they are related to what you just said, so why don't we just um, deal with that uh, in a little bit more uh, detail. Um, he starts out by saying that his questions are not about vol targeting, so uh, we're not going to get too excited today. Um, but so that's nice of you, uh, Alistair. And now um, I'm not entirely sure whether these questions are also for Rob Carl for when he returns later in May. But but here we go. How do you decide which maturity of futures to trade? How do you decide when to roll? How do you incorporate this into your backtest and what specific issues are there to look out for in this regard? Have you found that different approaches to managing roles have material impact on trend following strategies? If so, is that something to be avoided, separated out from the, the trend following strategy or embraced as part of your trend following strategy? So let's start, let's start with that. There's a, a follow up question, but, um, but let, let's go into a little bit more detail as to how we pick the maturity, how we decide on the roles, um, and uh, and also whether, you know, essentially whether there is alpha in how you roll, um, I guess, is a way to 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 summarize that question. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on this, uh, Moritz? Yeah, I think there's probably uh, some, let's say, negative alpha that can be avoided by not rolling at uh, points in time that aren't aren't really reasonable I, I'll, I'll explain what i mean by that but first off how do we pick maturities um it depends really as far as i'm concerned it depends on the market that i'm looking at for instance i'm trading the hang sang right hang sang is an equity index and all the liquidity is really in the front month contract and it doesn't trade any farther you know it, it, it really is not liquid farther out so this is where I am. I'm trading the front contract and I'm rolling from front contract to front contract. And uh, when you look at that market, you can find um, when the open interest shifts and there's kind of like a period which the market uses to roll from one contract to the next. And I tend to be part of that pack, right? Because this is when the spreads trade the tightest. This is when the roll can be done in the most efficient way. So I'm doing it that way. I'm not doing it that way necessarily in other markets. 
we've mentioned the short-term interest rate contracts where you know, you can trade much, much farther out of the curve. You know, three years out of the curve, not a problem. Three and a half, four years out of the curve, not a problem. Um, I look at the, we've mentioned the crude oil or a lot of the energy markets where the futures curve is much more liquid and nobody is forcing you to only focus your attention on the front month contract. Um, it may be worthwhile picking a couple um, you, you can you can look essentially you could look at all the expirations and treat them as individual markets and then you know reduce the weight of each of those markets to create one big thing again or you could say you know what as far as crude oil is concerned maybe i'm only trading june and deck and then never looking at any of the other markets right i'm just doing those two contracts in a year and that saves me roll cost uh, it saves me operational involvement i'll probably get the bigger trends maybe not as pronounced but that you know you could do it that way i think you need to find what what works for you and then um some of the markets that have a um, first notice date prior to last trade um and this by the way is uh is the case in many of the agricultural markets there the market has you know you need to look at when do open interests really change and for instance, in the grains, the market tends to roll uh, way ahead of first notice. And it doesn't even wait for like first notice to show up. And then like, you know, two days before you would roll, they sometimes, you know, the market rolls uh, a month ahead of first notice. So have a look at the data. The data is available. Download it. Download the open interest numbers. Download the volume numbers. And then, you know, go through the markets and uh, figure out when the market is... Um, when the liquidity shifts from one contract to the next. And I think it it makes sense uh, to be part of that liquidity pool at that point in time, because if you are not, and this is what I've meant with the negative alpha, if you're kind of like deliberately going against that and you would say keep a grain contract uh, much, much longer, much, much closer to first notice, right? Uh, you'll probably find that with offer spreads become much wider when you want to trade the role. Uh, the market is less liquid, there's less volume traded. So just your trading cost will uh, increase if you're doing the role at that point in time. And that's what I mean, like, you know, this this can be avoided by uh, looking at the market more closely and finding the right points to trade. Yeah, yeah. And and so I would I would summarize kind of the way I, I look at it, uh, which is obviously very similar to what Moritz uh, has just done. Uh, Alistair, I would say that you know, first of all, identify if you're trading, say, 25 different futures contracts. Just go through each of them and find out which which contract which contract tracks month would you even trade, right? Because, as as Moritz said, some markets trade each calendar month, and then you want to need to be in in all of them. Some markets, a lot of them, only trade four months uh, in a year, and, and they're not all just the usual calendar type quarterly uh, month. Uh, certainly, in the uh, commodities, there might be some. Uh, some weird um, um, month that they trade, so to speak. Um, but it should all be clear from the data. So first, identify which contract month you want to be in. And then, as Mark says, a good way, a good starting point is just to observe when the volume changes from one to another or the open interest. But for backtest purposes, um, I think what, what I found is just you can pick really the same date. So like, you know, 15 days before the... Uh, month of the actual contract expiry or something like that you can you can put that into a lot of these data vendor uh, platforms and and just have a fixed 
quote unquote fixed date for your back test, um, and then you're always going to roll that time. and 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 if you're conservative in in uh, when you roll, it might not be the optimal in terms of uh, the cost, but it will be good enough, I think, for for doing a back test. Um, and then your final point is that you know, is there alpha to be had in in, uh, in 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 the actual role, and I think that's exactly where the good trading desks comes in. I mean, there's a reason why, for example, on our side, um, you know, a lot of our guys on our trading desk, uh, you know, have not only been with Dunn for more than 20 years, but they've been in the markets for 40 years. They they know this stuff, and this is where they're incredibly valuable uh, to a firm um, when it comes to to these things. Uh, one, keeping you out of trouble, but also uh, doing it in the most efficient way, so so that's where they uh, they bring a lot of value. Then you had one follow up question, um, and you say um, and the question is inspired by Simon Sinek's book "Start with Why." Um, so he says each week you give us a great insight into both what you do and how you do it. I would be interested to hear each of you uh, the reason for why. You do what you do. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Moritz, do you want to start out why you do what you do? Uh, I do what I do because uh, I enjoy uh, trading. I want to make money from the markets. And I'm using systematic trend following strategies. And here's the answer to your why. Because I have not found any other strategy that um, works so well for me than this particular strategy that has money-making elements to it. It's, you know, rules-based, I can rely on data, I can backtest it, I follow the system, and it has this protective feature that keeps my, or tends to keep my portfolio out of too much trouble when I compare it to other type of strategies. This is really why I do it. It makes me money, and I'm really the type of guy that can follow it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, from my part of, of point of view, I mean, one, um, you know, it's been more than 30 years now since I was introduced to trend following, and it really was love at first sight. I think I think it made so much sense coming from a trading background myself. I know how difficult it is to make these decisions, uh, you know, when they most count and you're under the most level of stress. So I think from, from that point of view, um, the strategy, uh, the philosophy uh, makes total sense Uh and then the other thing is that I think if you if you really have a focus and 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 I've been fortunate enough to work with a few people who uh, you know you have that and it's certainly been the DNA of done in the last forty five years and that is if you can continue to make small improvements you know every day or every year or every month um, you know you're going to be better off uh, a year from now you're going to constantly improve your systems and, and this is also why we found that despite um, you know, a lot of people saying the trend following hasn't made money in the last 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. We've actually delivered the same annualized returns in the past, you know, 10, 12 years as we have in the last 35 years. So so I, this is why we do what we do. This is why I do what I do. And then finally, I would say, and, and this is a big part of the why, and this is also the why I started the podcast originally, and that is I deeply, deeply want people to build better performing but also safer portfolios and i don't know any other way or any better way to do that by including and combining non-correlated return streams uh, together and one of those return streams and all the evidence sh you know shows that one of those return streams 
is trend following. And so that's exactly why I do this. And this is why I've been doing the podcast for six years and, and, uh, and why Morris and I love coming on every week, uh, pretty much. I mean, so, um, so yeah, so thanks for the, the question. I hope, um, I hope it made sense in terms of all the role stuff. And, and now at least, you know, a little bit more about why we, we do what we do. By the way, it's a great book. I think everybody should read Simon Sinek's and, and, and some of the other stuff that he, that he does, uh, as well. Moritz, what else can we, uh, bring up in today's conversation? Um, what, what, what you have on your radar for the coming week, maybe, or something else you're working on that you find in particular, very exciting at the moment. Uh, I'm not even sure about next week yet. It's Sunday, so uh, I'll worry about that <laughs> on Monday morning. But uh, one um, one tweet I'd like to bring up from our friend Wayne, um, and uh, that's one I really liked. Um, it goes as this. There are two broad kinds of market inefficiencies, structural and behavioral. Behavioral is the natural result of things we always do, while structural is the unintended result of things we've done. Structural offers trading opportunities, behavioral offers trading strategies. And I think this is really great as so many things from Wayne are because, you know, we with our trend following strategies, I think benefit a lot from the behavioral workings of, you know, market participants, markets trend because of, you know, people's behaviors over time. And the structural things, you may say, let me give an example, maybe the way we're using passive vehicles such as ETFs and the way they impact the market, that may cause or that can cause structural inefficiencies and structural problems of the market, which we as trend followers, we don't focus on them. We, we didn't design our strategies because of that structural problem. We couldn't foresee that. It's just there. It's one of the unintended consequence of things that we have done and it may pan out in a certain way nobody knows how but i found that um i found that very interesting because uh both offer opportunities yeah no absolutely it's very well said uh in terms of um the industry and how that fared in in april um we can quickly run through the numbers so the b top 50 index which is the uh, 20 largest CTAs open to new investors, as far as I remember. Um, it was up about 45 basis points for the month of April, still down about 1.8% uh, for the year, but uh, up for, for April. Uh, the StockGen CT index was pretty much similar, up 41 basis points uh, and are pretty much flat for the year. The trend index uh, also up 0.43% uh, for the month of April, up 274 for the year. And the Sokjian Traders uh, short-term traders index was down a basis point in April, but still up 3.94% for the year. And the bridge alternative index, which we normally refer to, that was not updated as of April 30th, so I don't have the final uh, numbers uh, on that. Um, of course, if you want to do like Alistair and, and send us a, a question or two, uh, you can do so. Um, we would be delighted to uh, dive into those. Uh, please send it to info at toptradersonplug.com. And also, if you uh, want a little bit of uh, reading material as we're all still quarantined, or at least many of us are, um, 
on the website, you can pick up uh, a guide that I did a little while ago, a few months ago, to some of the best investment books um, that I could find. And hopefully that will give you some inspiration. Um, before we wrap up, I also just want to say that, uh, you know, we don't take your attention for granted. And uh, this, uh, you know, the journey we're on is solely because you're gifting us your time and attention. Uh, so, you know, we have much love and appreciation for everyone out there who takes, uh, you know, took the chance on the show when they first started listening and who have become part of, of our audience. Uh, it means uh, a lot to us. And it's really your kind of energy and enthusiasm and engagement with us that keeps us doing what we do. Any final thoughts, uh, Moritz, before we, um, we leave it for this week? Um, no, happy trading, everyone. Uh, lots of success for the month of May. Um, be careful and uh, looking forward to being on again next weekend. Well, speaking about next weekend, maybe we should uh, disclose who our guest is. It's uh, a little bit of a different guest this time. Um, and, um, and you know, hopefully everything pans out and he will be on the show next week. So uh, let's not jinx it. But um, but it's someone that I think you'll find interesting and I, we would love if you maybe have some questions that would relate well to him um, because it is the one and only Nick Leeson. Nick Leeson, you may remember um, probably most for the news and the headlines that were surrounded by him back uh, when the Barings Bank that he worked for um, went down, essentially, uh, due to some very large uh, positions uh, that he was involved in. So I think we'll obviously get, um, I'm sure, uh, uh, the true story of what really took place. Uh, for those of you who have been in the markets for a couple of decades, you know it was something really um, that took up a lot of space in the media at the time. But I think it's uh, always worth to uh, to hear the real story. We know that it's not what we read in the papers very often. So let's hear about that. But also the the experience uh, and 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 what you learned uh, on many levels. I think the conversation next week will be somewhat different to our usual conversation. I am looking forward to it, but I would also love to bring some of your questions uh, to Nick. So uh, by all means, send your questions to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to incorporate them in our conversation. But I think on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that you uh, enjoyed it. And so from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. Um, and we'll be back with you next week. And in the meantime, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.